You are now listening to the October 17th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, Sermon, and Transforming Grace. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston from Story of Kings. Thus far in our Story of Kings series, we have been covering the kings in northern Israel. We started our stories with King Jeroboam, and we finished the story of King Amri, who seemed successful in human terms, but failed miserably in spiritual realms. King Amri had a son named Ahab, Ahab was also a bad king, like his father, and much worse. He was infamous by deliberately opposing the will of God. And he had a notoriously evil wife called Jezebel. You might say the two of them made a potent combination and together they made a spectacle out of themselves by living in sin for all to see. Starting today, we'll cover the stories surrounding King Ahab, for that we turn to 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29, until chapter 22, verse 40, and 2 Chronicles chapter 18. As son of King Amri, Ahab was the sixth king of northern Israel. He reigned over northern Israel in Samaria for 22 years. The Bible says Ahab was a king who committed more evil acts in the sight of the Lord than anyone else before him. The Bible says that he considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam. Trivial here means nothing and insignificant. In other words, the evil nature of King Ahab was much worse than that of Jeroboam. Ahab's father, King Amri, had been in conflict with Aram. And the hostility between the two countries continued through the years of King Ahab. Therefore, as a way to guard against Aram, King Ahab forged an alliance with a third country, Sidon. To facilitate this alliance, he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of Sidon. However, this political scheme backfired on Ahab and Israel because Jezebel ended up corrupting Israel from inside. 2 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 22 says Ahab's wife Jezebel was wicked and immoral and practiced witchcraft. The Bible portrays her as the most evil woman that corrupted Israel and led it to destruction. The following excerpt is taken from 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 31-33. through 33. It reads, Referring to Ahab, it came about, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Basically, the Bible says that King Ahab 
did more to provoke God than all the kings that had preceded him. The confrontations between Ahab and prophet Elijah are well known in the Bible. Ahab served a pagan god, Baal, and he opposed Elijah, the prophet of God. The confrontation between God's prophet Elijah and 450 of Baal's prophets is recorded in 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18. In a big showdown, prophet Elijah demonstrated in front of King Ahab and the people of Israel that Lord God was the true God. That day, God responded to Elijah's prayer in a spectacular way and Elijah subsequently killed all of Baal's prophets. King Ahab saw in plain view that the Lord was the true God. Do you think Ahab repented after witnessing the glory of God? Unfortunately, King Ahab was wicked in conniving. He still didn't acknowledge that the Lord was the true God. He told his wife Jezebel about everything Elijah did and how he killed all the prophets of Baal with a sword. Jezebel reacted immediately. She sent a messenger to Elijah to say he would be killed tomorrow. The rest of the story can be found in 1 Kings chapter 19. The northern kingdom of Israel, under Ahab, and its neighboring country, Aram, had been jostling against each other over the years. For one, they were jockeying to control the trade routes and battled over the cities along Israel's borders. At one time, the two countries had an alliance. A few years back, Baasha, the third king of Israel, and Aram's Ben-Hadad I, enjoyed an amicable relationship. However, that was no longer the case. The current king of Aram, King Ben-Hadad, was in fact the son of Ben-Hadad I. As hostility mounted, Ben-Hadad II allied with 32 other kings from surrounding areas and amassed a huge army. Ben-Hadad led the allied force against Israel and besieged Samaria. He pressured King Adab to surrender. He sent a messenger to King Ahab and said, Your silver and gold are mine, and your beautiful wives and children are mine. King Ahab had to have been completely overwhelmed by the forces that came up against him. He lowered himself by calling Ben-Hadad his lord and said he would be willing to meet Ben-Hadad's terms. Upon hearing King Ahab's agreements to his demands, King Ben-Hadad decided to press further. Ben-Hadad sent a messenger again and told King Ahab this time that he would also search Ahab's house and his servants' houses and take whatever looked good in his eyes. King Ahab was then taken aback. He was concerned that Ben-Hadad would not only take the things already mentioned but also search the houses and take everything. He wondered then, what would be the point of surrendering? So King Ahab called the elders of the land and discussed what he should do. The elders of Israel told King Ahab to take a decisive action by rejecting the offensive request from Ben-Hadad. King Ahab told Ben-Hadad that he refused to accept the new terms. The situation now escalated. 
When Ben-Hadad received the message of refusal, he sent a messenger again and threatened to turn Samaria and its people into dust. King Ahab did not submit to this threat and retorted, Let not him who girds on his armor boast like him who takes it off. Ben-Hadad and his allied forces sprung to action and prepared for battle. With imminent war looming over his head, Ahab was then visited by an unknown prophet who spoke to him the word of the Lord. This is what 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 13 says. Now behold, a prophet approached Ahab king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver them into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. From this verse, we know God did not give up on Ahab, even though Ahab had given up on God. Upon hearing the prophet's word, King Ahab asked him further about how to prepare for battle. The prophet instructed King Ahab to launch the battle with the young men of the rulers of the provinces. Following the prophet's instructions, King Ahab gathered the young men and marched out. In 1 Kings chapter 20, verses 19 and 20, it is said, So these went out from the city, the young men of the rulers of the provinces, and the army which followed them. They killed each his man, and the Arameans fled, and Israel pursued them, and Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, escaped on a horse with his horsemen. King Ahab marched out with only 230 young men of the rulers of the provinces and 7,000 additional men. It was a dismally small army compared to Ben-Hadad's allied forces. When King Ahab followed God's word, God gave him victory, even with a much smaller army. God wanted King Ahab to know that he was the Lord and to return to him. The Bible doesn't clearly say whether Ahab truly turned his heart towards God, or he just followed God's words in desperation, facing a formidable foe. Either way, it is clear that God wanted King Ahab to return to him by witnessing his divine intervention. In today's story, King Ahab had a great victory in the battle against Aram. Next time, we'll learn how King Ahab lived his life afterwards. I'll see you next time from the story of Kings. Have a blessed week.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Sin Rebuke Repentance, Consequence, Restoration. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. God's law is beautiful in his care for his people, but terrifying for those who are sinners. Now this morning, that's important as we come back into our series on the life of David, who is an ordinary man who became an extraordinary king. But what we find here is is that Israel in 1 Samuel was demanding a king like the nations. They said, we want a, a just judge who's gonna judge for us, bringing peace to us and amongst us. And we want a mighty warrior who will go out and fight our battles for us. We're going to see that God's greater Messiah is the just judge who shows grace to sinners. We're going to see this in a number of ways, but can I just pray for us as we begin? Father, this morning we come before you, our great God, praising you because you are our just judge. Father, we glory in that. We need a king over all things who is just and good in all of his judgments. But Father, as we come before you, we also recognize that we are sinners in need of much grace. And so this morning, Father, we pray that you would help us to revel in your justice, but also to see our desperate need of your grace and glory in that as well. And so Father, we come before you in the name of your Son. Amen. First thing we see this morning in verses 1 to 6 is that David is the just judge. What an irony. He's he's presented as a just judge. You can't miss the irony of Nathan approaching King David. This epic sinner whose sins deserve death row. And yet here, Nathan brings a parable about two men, a rich man and a poor man, that sinners on a sheep. And you can imagine how a story about a sheep is going to play the, on the heartstrings of this former shepherd, and how he's going to identify with that story, and he's going to sense the injustice of it all. But as we read in verses 1 to 6, you'll remember that Nathan tells David this parable, and he says there's a a rich man who had many flocks, many sheep, and there was a poor man who had nothing except this one little ewe lamb, which he bought and brought up eating from his plate and drinking for his cup, and he even laid in his arms like a daughter to him. Interesting word for daughter. Uh, Same word for Bathsheba, daughter of Sheba, used here, so David should have been on to something, but, but he's not. And you'll notice that travelers visited this rich man, and he didn't want to use one of his many sheep to feed his guest. So he took this poor man's one sheep, and he, he gave it as a meal to these visitors. Now catch what David's response is. When he responds in verses 5 to 6, he hears this. And how is David going to respond. He says this. It says that David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. <laughs> there are a couple of things that, that strike me here. One, did you catch how David immediately identified himself with the victim? The poor man. David risked his life for sheep, fighting lions and bears to protect them, to save them, to keep them safe before becoming king. And he knew this sheep, his sheep, by name. 
And they knew his voice. He knew this kind of intimacy between the shepherd and the sheep. And David senses the injustice and his anger is kindled over this sheep. He didn't think twice about the blood of Uriah and all of it. This poor man, he would receive justice because he was like the poor man. Second thing striking here is how strict David was with his sentence against the rich man, this perpetrator of injustice. Did you see it? It was fascinating. David makes an oath before Yahweh's name. This man is a son of death. He deserves to die. He is good as death in the Hebrew for what he has done. Now that might seem a little bit harsh, especially if you know the law of God. The law of God actually has a law outlined in Exodus 22.1. If a man steals a sheep, he shall repay four sheep for a sheep, not a human life for a sheep. Uh, But here we find that David quickly drops back and shows that he knows the law, and he says, this man is going to pay the full extent of the law for what he has done, this evil thing. And if David had it his way, he would die. See, David is blind to his own sin, but he's the strict judge of justice with the sins of others. Does that sound familiar? Anybody ever kind of experienced that in their own lives? See, David looks so much like Israel and us, apart from a work of the Spirit in our lives revealing our own sin. There are four quick things that we know about fallen humanity that are on display here. Four quick realities about sin. First, when we read our Bibles, we tend to identify with the victims and the heroes of the story much more than the actual perpetrators. Have you ever noticed that? Like when I read a Bible story, I am associating immediately myself with the heroes. Uh, Not only that, we find that sin, while blind, while we are blind to our own sins, have you ever noticed this? That we have a sniper-like precision when we are looking at the sins of others? Like maybe you've noticed this in your friendships or your marriage. Um, it is really easy for you to see the wrongs of the person that you love most, but it is really hard for you to see your own sins, and sometimes they are so helpful in revealing those. And how shocked and surprised we are when we discover that, oh, I thought it was just you that is a sinner, but I'm a sinner too. Or third, have you noticed that we tend to want harsh punishments for those who sin against us? And deep mercy when we sin against others? And sometimes that can happen in an instant. We are wanting strict justice for the person who has sinned against us. Not even thinking about the way that they've sinned against God. But when we recognize ourselves as sinners, what do you want? What is your impulse? Isn't it a longing for someone to show mercy? And then fourth, the sins of others always appear larger than our own sins. Right? And the greater Messiah, King Jesus, when he came... He could have been actually speaking to you, me, or David when he speaks in Matthew 7, 1 to 3, saying, Judge not that you be not judged. Now, just hear me. This is not saying that Christians do not make judgments. In fact, he's going to go on in Matthew 18 to show how the church makes judgments and even judges those who are living in unrepentant sin. But what he goes on to say is this, For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. Can you see David in this? And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. But God still hears the blood of Uriah crying out from the ground, even as David has forgotten it. 
And he goes on to say, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? See, Jesus isn't saying not to make judgments against others. He's saying you you need to consider first your own heart before a holy and just God. Maybe you are so distracted by the sins of others that you haven't met with God in your sin. And Jesus isn't saying don't make judgments. He's saying be clear about your own heart before a holy and just judge. See, the law is first a mirror for ourselves to show us our desperate need of God's grace. That's what it's meant to do. Our desperate need for God. And catch how Nathan responds to King David the just. Did you see this? In the midst of David's profound anger and justice, Nathan says, I think you're ready to see that you're the guilty perpetrator. Notice how it unfolds. He first reminds David of tangible evidences of God's grace in his life. In other words, he doesn't jump to the guilt. He says, have you forgotten the goodness of God? Did you see that? Uh, Look what he says in verses 7 to 8. He says this, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave to you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Think about that. God, he begins by saying, I I handed you, without use of your sword or spear, all that King Saul had. In fact, all of his wives and his households and possessions, all of those were yours. God faithfully lavished his steadfast covenantal love on David. And don't miss this. God here begins by saying, my tangible graces in your life, David, ought to serve as a preventative against sin. Have you ever thought about that? That we need to keep particular graces of God in our lives daily before us, reminding us that there is no good thing that comes to us that has not come straight from the hand of our Creator God. Think about that. A God who is infinite cares for you, especially for David, who is his Messiah, his Spirit-anointed King over his people. Christian, doesn't Paul give us an even greater encouragement in the new covenant? Do you remember what he says in Ephesians 3.20 as we are being encouraged to pray? Who do we pray to? We pray to the God who is able to do more than we can think or imagine. No, wait a minute, that's not right. We pray to the God who can do so much more than we can think or imagine. He says, you, you think that your needs are too great for my hands. And he says, you don't know how big my hands are. See, Paul says God is able. He is able. God says David's blindness to his sin began long before he became blind to the immeasurable grace of God, though. It's not a bad practice to consider and count your many blessings one by one. When was the last time that you did that? Maybe the reason that you've gotten in such a rut of thinking about how little you have or how much you've lost is because you haven't thought about how fresh and good the grace of God is in your life today. See, it's not a bad practice to count your many blessings one by one and rejoice in the Lord always for very specific, tangible reasons as a wall of grace against the enticements of sin. 
See, David lost sight of the goodness of God and his word, the law, which elsewhere, you remember elsewhere how David is speaking about the word of God? It is sweet as honey and it is as precious as fine metals, as gold. It is valuable and sweet. I value it. I desire it much more than the things of this world. I don't think that was what was going on in 2 Samuel 11 when David sinned against God. He lost sight of the goodness of God. Uh, then B, did you see that God shows? Also that he has seen David's specific sins in verse 9? This is how it unfolds from God's grace to specific sins. Now we don't know if David thought that God did not see his sin or that God would overlook his sin. But God saw David's sin even when David did not see God looking. And it displeased God. And God shows specific ways David broke the law that he was supposed to uphold. He, he doesn't say, I just don't like the way you're acting, David. It's not my preference. He says, you have violated the clear commands of God's word. You sinned. You committed adultery with Bathsheba. You murdered Uriah and the men who were with Uriah. God says David's sin revealed that he despised God's word. Now, this is huge. Saul sinned against God. And God rejected him and removed his spirit from him. And here we find David really testing the covenant faithfulness that God promised him just back in 2 Samuel 7. Will David's end be the same as Saul's? And what does that mean for the rest of humanity? Well, notice in verses 10 to 12 that God lays out the punishments. And catch what he says. Now look there with me in verses 10 to 12. He says this. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. And have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you and out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly. I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the son. Now catch what he says here. He says the sword will never be removed from the house of of David. There's always going to be fighting. And that that fighting will actually be an inside job. There will be someone who will be raised up from within who will bring evil against David and his house. And just as David took the wife of this poor man, in exchange, God says, this one from your house will take all of the wives that are under your roof. See, David may have forgotten the blood of Uriah, but God heard it crying from the ground for justice, just like the blood of Abel back in Genesis 4. This is really the bait and switch of sin, isn't it? You know, David is thinking, I have everything in the world, but not that, and that's the thing that I want. And it's sin, and yet he says, but I've got to have it. And Satan says, you can have it, and you know what? It's the one thing that you don't have, that if you had, you're going to have joy forever. And he takes it, and he loses everything. And that's what Satan loves to do. He comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Sin promises you more joy, but it always robs you of more joy and leaves you emptier than when you began. And God saw David's secret sins, and he uncovered them in the light of day with all of the consequences. See, the rest of David's life from this sin forward is riddled with the consequences of this moment in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And here in 12, he is exposing that. See, God is just, and even his just king must be under the justice and his rule. Don't take 
God's patience in dealing with sin is absence. I think that's one lesson that we learned here really quickly. God's timing is always, it is always perfect, and his justice is always pure, and it always comes. And he's going to expose our sins, both seen and unseen. In fact, we were promised as much in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, where it, Paul says that Jesus will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And then each one will receive his commendation before God for who he actually is. I'm just wondering, are, are you ready for that day? See, God sees all things. He sees those sins of omission, the things that we ought to do but do not do, those sins of commission where we do things that we are told we're not to do, and even those sins here of contemplation, those sins of the heart that we meditate about, even if they never see the light of day, God sees them as clear as day. And day is coming when he is going to hold all of those to account. Are you ready to meet the just judge? David, I don't think, realized that he was about to come before the just judge. But here he is. And how does he respond? Well, catch what he does in verse 13. He repents of his sin. He repents of his sin. See, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. A few things are, are striking here, especially when you double-click on Psalm 51. See, Psalm 51 is beautiful that we read this morning. It's, it's actually a window into the soul of David as to what he was thinking about God in his sin in 2 Samuel 12 when he is approached by Nathan. Now notice the things that we can learn about David in his sin really quickly. First, God's word drops God's king to his knees. Now we don't know how much time elapsed between David's sin and David's confrontation where he confesses here, but David seemed to walk around like he was okay for a, a while perhaps until he was confronted with his sin in the word of God. See, David might have felt safe in his sin as he was on the throne in Zion, but God's word shatters him. I'm wondering if God has ever done this to you, exposed you, and left you feeling shattered. In fact, if you double-click on this text, Psalm 51, 3, you'll see there that David says, I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. He wasn't thinking about it before this moment, and now it's all he can think about. And in verse 8, he says, let the bones that you have broken rejoice, broken by his sin, in his sin, in the consequences, in the revelation of who he is. David can't escape his God or his sins. Not only that, second, do you see that David sinned against the Lord? He says, I've sinned against you. Now, David sinned greatly against Bathsheba when he committed adultery with her. David sinned incredibly when he murdered Uriah and all of those warriors with him to cover his sin. He, he sinned greatly against others. But God's word here helps David see the ultimate issue with his sin. I have sinned against the Lord. In fact, maybe some of our problems in life are that we only see our sin before others and not before God. It's hard to repent when it's just humans that may deserve worse treatment than you're giving them, but when we see it in light of who God is, it humbles us. But David even doubles down in Psalm 51, 4. Do you remember what he says there? Not just, I sinned against the Lord. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now maybe that feels just a little bit funky to you. I mean, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? 
What about the others? David sinned against them, but don't miss this. Seeing ourselves before the God who sees us helps us love those we see better. If you see yourself before the eyes of the unseen God, it will help you love those you see better. Because when you lose sight of the God who is spirit, you are not going to live as one who is loving as God has commanded us. See, David understands that God's word, the law defines what is right and what is wrong, not human opinion. And all sin traces back to a violation against the very character of God who is the ultimate just judge. Now what's fascinating is in that Psalm 51, 5, David says, here's the big problem that this traces me back to. It's not that I was like sinless before we hit 2 Samuel 12. No, in verse 5, he says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother did conceive me. This is a problem of all of creation that is broken and riddled with sin. And these experiences, these particular moments of sin, trace back to a bigger brokenness that has encompassed the whole world. Yet here, we find that David is saying, I am not merely a sinner because I've sinned. I sinned because I'm a sinner. I inherited Adam's sin nature. And David's guilty for actual sins, and he sins because he inherited his sin nature, yet David is culpable before God. Not only that, did you notice this in these verses? That David doesn't deny, excuse, qualify, or blame others for his sins. See, God's word broke through his hard heart so that he sees God himself and others as clearly as ever as a sinner. Now, many focus on David's repentance here. And clearly, repentance includes confession of sins, and clearly David is repenting. But catch this, Saul sinned. Saul confessed, Saul repented, and God rejected his plea of pardon. So if you're David, you're coming to this sin, and you're coming before God, and you're like, how can I ever be clean again? How can I ever be forgiven? Saul was not forgiven. Am I done? Am I lost? I know he made that covenant in chapter 7, but how's it going to hold up under the weight of my egregious sins? I love what commentator John Woodhouse says here. You know, so many make David's repentance the main point of this text, but John Woodhouse, he says this in his commentary, we should be slow to give David credit for his response. This man, after all this time, after all the damage he has done, after showing no remorse at all, was at last shattered by the word of God. The wonder is that the word of the Lord could bring about this response in him as hard-hearted as he is. Nothing else could. See, the main point here is isn't the power of David's repentance or the the procedure of repentance that should be followed. No, it is the power of God's word to shatter sinners and make them new. See, Psalm 51 gets it. David wonders how God can cleanse and forgive him. And that's why I think verse 14 is the literary and theological center of this text. Fourth, God puts away David's sin in verses 14 to 23. Now, we often think of David's repentance as the meaning of this text. I think it is a meaning of this text. But here's a right response. It is a right response to expose sin. However, don't forget that Saul sinned, repented, and he was not pardoned. That's why David is king. But catch what God tells David. He says this in verses, in the second part of 13 to 15. Look at what he says. These are glorious words. He says, the Lord also 
David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by his deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Now, do you remember how this text began? Righteous, just David, thundering down. That rich man must die for his sins. He must pay in full for what he has done according to the full extent of your law, God. But don't miss this. Sin brings about God's terrifying justice in the midst of God's unmerited grace and mercy. See, God's word required a life for a life in Numbers 35, 16. This is lex talionis, the eye that there's an eye for an eye, a life for a life. What's fair is for David to die for his sin. And God's word required this. But justice, justice meant David needed to die for murder. Losing his wives might cover the adultery that he did with Bathsheba. But how do you account for Uriah's lost life? How do you come back from the loss of a life? How is it just? How do you bring that back and bring recompense to this? Only a life pays for a life. And it doesn't even bring you back to full. But don't miss this. The law is beautiful in that it displays the character of God. But it is also terrifying to filthy sinners before a holy God. It's terrifying for guilty sinners before a just judge. And take note here. What a beautiful word that he receives. It says that God... Put away David's sin. He put it away. God says, I have transferred your guilt to another that you may live. See, David hints at this understanding in Psalm 51.7. You'll remember that he says there, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Now, why, why is David bringing up hyssop here? Well, hyssop is Passover language. It was the language of the hyssop that when God's people were enslaved in Egypt, God brought curses upon them to deliver them out of slavery. And if they would take the blood of the lamb and they would wipe it with hyssop over the doorframe, then anybody, any firstborn child that was in that door would live. But anyone that did not have the blood covering them would die. That's what happens in Exodus 12, 22. This is Passover sacrificial language. But where is the substitute? Well, it's in verse 14. The child who is born to you shall die. It's terrifying. God, we are told, struck the son with sickness. Like he struck his enemies and David's enemies before. But here he strikes this son that David might live. And then you read verses 16 to 23. This child dies. Now, if you're like me, this is where you're like Ivan, right? From Dostoevsky's uh, Brothers Karamazov. Maybe you remember there where he says, the death of a single infant calls into question the goodness of God. And how much more here, a sacrificial infant that is offered for the life of David. Uh, You'll remember that there is uh, scant evidence of sacrifice of children in the Old Testament by the people of God. You'll remember that God told Abraham to provide his son Isaac as a sacrifice. But what did God do? Provided a sacrificial lamb. And it's later that wicked king Manasseh that came along and is condemned for offering his children as sacrifices to false gods. But here, the death of this child, I believe, is meant to arrest you. You're not meant to see this and think to yourself, oh wow, I guess God thinks it's okay to kill babies. No, this is a picture of a kind of transfer that is taking place. 
See, here, David receives a paschal lamb as a sacrificial substitute for himself. And as goes the king, so goes the people. So this is for the nation as a whole. You remember that that is the way that God brings sinners into his presence is through a blood sacrifice. So here, the death of this child, it's meant to arrest us. This innocent child is born to die, to bear the sins of David and all of Israel because as goes the king, so goes his people. This child brings together the imagery of penal substitutionary atonement. Now, if you're a non-Christian, I just want to give you another spoiler alert about where this story goes. That's what we like to do when we're talking about the Old Testament. We don't want you to miss the the point of this story, and it's Jesus all the way along. See, this child's death only foreshadowed God's greater son, with whom God was well pleased, both in life and in death, as as a substitute and sacrifice for all of those who put their faith in Christ. It pleased God. It satisfied God's wrath and anger towards us, this sacrifice that was offered to us in his son. And if you're horrified by the death of this innocent infant, Jesus is the true innocent sufferer, a child of David who was born to die for our sins so that we might be pardoned by God. So if you want God to pardon your sins, if you want God to accept you as a child and not an enemy, then you are called to repent and put your faith in Christ alone as God's greater king and his greater son. That is... The person, the one person to whom you must put your faith and confidence. Uh, Jesus is unique in this. You know, Muhammad did not come to die for your sins. Other cults, uh, they do not have a king who came to die for your sins. Who has come and taken on human flesh to die for our sins that we might have right relationship with God. He is the only way. That's the only way to blot out your sins is David dreamed of in Psalm 51. The only way to have them removed from him, to be blotted out, for him to be made innocent, to be cleaned, and to be forgiven. Uh, Paul explains this in Colossians 2, 13 to 15. He says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the debt, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. He shamed not us but them by triumphing over them in him being Jesus. So repent and believe in the grace of God and you will be saved. You'll be a new creature. Don't leave without telling us about that. We would love to tell you more about how to become a Christian before you leave if you're not a Christian. David ground this hope of forgiveness. Well, Psalm 51.1 gives us a clue, doesn't it? He says, I'm coming to you. And I'm asking you to show mercy to me according to your steadfast covenantal love, O God. That's what he's appealing to. There's nothing in me that merits this kind of forgiveness and love and faithfulness. I have been unfaithful. But you, God, are different. You are faithful. And you are loving. And you are good. And you are able to pardon sin. A just God who also shows grace. See, David's hope before a just God was the grace of God, not his repentance. God was David's greatest fear and hope at the very same time. That's why verse 23, there David responds to the question about why did you mourn while this child was sick and then you ate and worshiped after he died. David explains this way, can I bring him back? But I shall go to him 
but he will not return to me. Now, I would love to spend a lot more time on this. We don't have time this morning. But it seems that David sees a better future than the lifeless reality of Sheol, where dead people go and they just sort of sit and wait for whatever's next. And I think David might actually be hinting at a resurrection here, where there's a good day for him and the son that's been lost coming. We can't say that for sure, but he thinks that he's going to see his son. I think he means more than I'm just going to be with him in death someday. Of course, his greater son will actually see him one day when he welcomes into heaven the very arms of Christ. But fifth, lastly, did you notice the stories about God's grace and restoration even more than David's repentance? That's what we see in verses 24 to 31. There is a restoration that takes place after his repentance and God's forgiveness through the substitute. Notice that God rejected Saul but pardoned David. This is a beautiful story for David. He's not treated like Saul. He deserved what Saul got, but he got something better. Why? Because God made a covenant with David that he would not turn back from him. And we see this in God's restoration. Notice first, there are two ways we see this. God gives David and Bathsheba another son in verses 24 to 25. Did you see that? Verses 24 to 25, we see the son that is given to them, another son, and he's given two names that tell us something about the nature of God's relationship with them. He's called Solomon, a name that comes from the word for shalom or peace. It's a good sign, but not only that, he gives another name. Now, we don't see this name anywhere else in the Bible. He's called Jedidiah, which is a beautiful name. Jedidiah is this name that means beloved of the Lord. He, He took the life of one so that David might live, and he replaced him with this child who was beloved by the Lord, who had the favor of God, who prepared the way for the greater beloved son. See, this child would build up a house to worship God in. He would be in the line of the greater son, Jesus, who we are told in Matthew 1 is who? The child of Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. It's still there in the New Testament. Why? Because God wants to punctuate God's grace amidst his justice. It's not that justice has evaporated in the New Testament. God is saying, I have not forgot Uriah. I have not forgot what happened there. But look, my grace wins. My grace redeems and restores and brings hope where everything looks hopeless. But not only that, we see another beautiful picture in verses 26 to 31, and that's that David leads the charge to defeat the Ammonites. See, David gets to go back and defeat the Ammonites. God is with him again as he's winning in battle. It's the Lord that is winning through him. This is a sign of the favor of the Lord. And did you see what he gets to punctuate the end of this story? As he wins the victory over the Ammonites, he gets all kinds of treasure. Oh, and by the way, a 75-pound golden crown. So if there's ever any question in David's mind whether or not he's the king, as his men drag in the 75-pound crown and plop it right in front of him, if he's wondering if he's been restored, I think this crown might be saying something. That's the, the vision that we get. David, restored. Now that crown, he wasn't wearing on his head, obviously. That would have killed him. But it was meant to be like on a statue, showing the greatness of this king and his power, representing and reflecting not just the glory of David, but the glory of his God. And not just the God who is just, not just the God who is conquering, but the God of grace. Brothers and sisters, the cross is that so much more for us. That empty cross declaring both the justice and the mercy of God to sinners who come looking to have themselves clean from the filth of sin 
and forgiveness of the guilt that we have brought against God. You are now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour of our broadcast program. Here at Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, we strive to aid in the spiritual maturity of our listeners. Since 2000, we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through internet broadcasting or through our CD delivery program. Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. All you have to do is search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries to listen to or download this week or past week's programs. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Following is the program Transforming Grace. Hi, I'm Leslie Martin. 
What a joy to be with you today as I share my book, Transforming Grace. I want to thank Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries for asking me to be a part of this ministry series. My church, Calvary Phoenix, has been a longtime partner with Heart and Soul, and it is an honor to be asked to share in this way. Join me as we look at God's provision in this humble book about His unending, life-changing grace and love for each one of us. One of the things our family liked to do was go on driving day trips. My husband Mark, I, and our children would set off from our home in Phoenix, Arizona. Usually, we'd end up heading north into the Rim Country, the forests of Prescott, the Verde Valley, the breathtaking red rocks of Sedona, or the majestic mountains of Flagstaff. Several years ago, we found ourselves bouncing along a ruddy dirt road in the Verde Valley. The air was crisp and clean after a short, late summer rain, and we were out looking for adventure. We spotted a particularly beautiful prickly pear cactus loaded with red fruit and decided to take a closer look. My husband pulled the van over as far as he could on the side of the road, and we all piled out, tongs and buckets in hand, to pick prickly pear fruit. A few minutes later, we climbed into the van and tried to move, but the ground was too soft. The van was stuck in the wet, sandy soil. With one man and three kids trying to push, I endeavored to maneuver the van. As you can imagine, we didn't get very far. An hour or so later, with several rocks strategically placed under the tires and many heartfelt prayers, our vehicle finally made it back on the road, and we were on our way to civilization. There are times in life when we get stuck We may not be mired in the mud, but we're stuck in some hopeless situation. All our efforts seem futile as we struggle to extricate ourselves from our problem. Whether we are aware of it at the time or not, God cares, and He is already working to help us. The Bible says, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Romans 5.6 Jesus cares when we are stuck stuck in sin, stuck in a self-destructive lifestyle, or stuck in hopelessness. He has a plan, and He will come through at just the right moment. When we are stuck, God's grace moves Him to find us. Help comes in the most unexpected way. The Bible tells of a desperate woman who lived 2,000 years ago who found herself stuck in a painful, hopeless life. She couldn't extricate herself from her problem. She was far away from God and part of a rejected people group called the Samaritans. The Samaritans were related to the Jewish people and traced their lineage through the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. After the ten northern tribes of Israel were led away into captivity by the Assyrians, and subsequently the southern kingdom of Judah was exiled by the Babylonians, there were only a handful of Jewish people left in the land. Those who remained began to intermarry with the foreigners that had been brought in to settle the land of Israel. In time, the remaining Jews abandoned or reinterpreted the covenant God had made with them and fashioned a corrupted form of religion that adopted biblical and pagan elements from the various religions of the people who had been brought in. When the exiled Jews returned from their Babylonian captivity, they were appalled by their brethren's polluted form of religion and intermarriage with the pagan peoples. 
the returning Jewish exiles refused to reunite or reconcile with their brethren. By the time of Jesus, a deep animosity was firmly established between the Jews and their relatives who had become known as the Samaritans. With this historical background in mind, let's pick up the story of the hopeless Samaritan woman. Her story is found in John chapter 4. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. The Bible says Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Jews never passed through Samaria. They avoided it at all costs. When they traveled between Galilee in the north and Judah in the south, they would take a long detour around Samaria. They went many miles out of their way because of their hatred and disdain for the so-called half-breed race of the Samaritans. Jesus was doing something very unusual because he had a reason to go through Samaria. This is the only mention in the Bible of Jesus having to travel through Samaria. He probably went around Samaria with his disciples on other occasions, but this time he had a specific purpose. His heart of grace was moved to seek and find a terribly lost and confused woman. He would not only deliver her from her hopeless situation, but he would bring hope to all the Samaritans through her transformed life. Continuing in John chapter 4, starting in verse 4, And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. In just a few verses, we are given a picture of Jesus that is meant to remind us of one of the Jewish patriarchs, Jacob, the man who had dug this well. Here are the main elements of this picture. Jesus is weary from a long journey. He's sitting at a well at high noon. He's waiting for someone to arrive, and he's getting ready to ask for a drink. 2,000 years before Jesus met the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, Jacob, weary from a long journey, sat at high noon by a well waiting for someone to arrive. At that ancient well, Jacob met Rachel, the woman who would become his bride. Jacob and Rachel would become the ancestors of the Jews and the Samaritans. The similarity of Jesus and the patriarch Jacob's experience at the well was not a mere coincidence. God had orchestrated these events, although they were 2,000 years apart, to open the door of the Samaritan woman's heart to her conversation with Jesus. She knew the stories of her ancestors. And as she approached the well Jacob had dug and saw this tired, dusty traveler, it may have reminded her of Jacob's meeting Rachel for the first time. The Samaritan woman went to the well at noon to avoid being around other people. But instead of turning away when she saw Jesus sitting by the well, she walked up to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Give me a drink? She must have caught her breath a little at this request. Wasn't that the same question her ancestor was asked at a well by a weary traveler? The patriarch Abraham had sent his servant to find a bride for his son Isaac. After a long journey, the servant prayed and asked God to show him who he was to ask to be Isaac's bride. 
the woman who agreed to give him a drink and offered to water his camels would be God's choice of a bride for Isaac. As Rebecca approached the well, the servant asked, Please let me drink a little water from your jar. This story may have flashed through the mind of the Samaritan woman. It is certainly another point of similarity that God was using to draw her to Jesus. God took the initiative to reach out to this desperate woman through Jesus, meeting her at the well and asking for a drink. God is always the one who takes the initiative in our lives. We're not the ones who move God. God moves us. If you have a burden to pray for someone, if you have a desire in your heart to serve in some way, or if there is something you see that needs to be done for the kingdom of God, God has probably placed that idea and desire on your heart and mind. You're not the one moving God by what you are doing. God is the one who has placed that on your heart because he always takes the initiative. While the Samaritan woman quietly prepared to draw water from the well, Jesus asked her for a drink. Look how gently he spoke to her. He could have broken the silence of that stifling midday and announced, Here I am, the promised Messiah. But he didn't. He chose not to overwhelm her. He just looked up at her and asked, May I have a drink? He made himself very vulnerable. Jesus had made this long journey with the specific purpose of bringing hope and new life to a group of people lost in the darkness of sin and spiritual deception. Jesus' vulnerability and willingness to engage the woman in conversation opened up her heart. In verse 8 of John 4, it says, His disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. This isn't an incidental detail. John is highlighting the fact that Jesus was alone at Jacob's well. Jesus wanted to talk to this woman without all of his disciples there. Considering her background, she probably wouldn't have talked to the Lord with a group of men standing around and listening in on the conversation. Had she seen 13 men hanging around Jacob's well, she probably would have turned around while thinking to herself, I'll just forget about getting water today. God uses that same love and care in dealing with us. Details are not coincidental. Rather, they are specifically designed to show us the extent of God's love to us. Sychar, the woman's village, had its own well. She didn't have to travel this far to go to Jacob's well in the middle of the day. She went out of her way to go to a different well at a time when other people wouldn't be drawing water because she didn't want to be around anyone. She was not a popular person in Sychar. The men used and abused her, and the women would think nothing of spitting in her face, for that is the way women like her were treated in that culture. John goes on to say in John chapter 4, Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. John chapter 4, verse 9. It was not socially acceptable for a man to speak to a woman. It just wasn't done. Men didn't talk to women in public. They didn't even talk to the women in their own family in public. Jesus ignored this social restriction and spoke to a Samaritan woman. This was radical. On top of it all, she was a sinful Samaritan woman. At this point in her encounter with Jesus, however, 
She wasn't ready to share that part of her life with anyone, especially a Jewish man. What a demonstration of God's grace towards all of us. Jesus went around the customs and the prejudices of his time because he has a heart of grace and compassion for everyone who is lost and hurting, regardless of race, gender, or reputation. This poor woman had a lot of strikes against her, yet Jesus was there. He intentionally traveled through Samaria and sat at Jacob's well to talk because he wanted to share the water of the word of life with her. I hope you enjoyed this portion of God's Transforming Grace. We'll see you next time. God bless.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week. Thank you.